know, I think one of the in, most interesting things about Jesus, as you kind of think through the character of Jesus, is that we have this tradition that he was a carpenter. You had the God-man, the God of the universe, who created everything by the word of his mouth, who literally created trees, being a carpenter on earth. You had him actually sculpting and working and learning a skill to work with the creation that he spoke into existence. And one of the things that's interesting about that, though, is that it reflects that we have a God who builds things. We have a God who creates, sustains, and actually builds things. And so tonight, we're going to talk about what God is in the business of building, what his main building project is for the universe, and how you have a part in that. You have a role to play in God's building project. And his main building project is this, him building his temple to house his presence to unleash his purpose in the world. So we're going to talk about that tonight, and uh, we're going to look at this passage in 1 Peter and what that concerns with God's building project. So let's read this, starting in verse 4. Verse 4, as you come to him, and that's Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, uh, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, this is us, the people of God, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to break this passage down tonight. Father, you are present. You are here. Not because of anything that we've done, but because of Jesus, and because you have saw fit to take up a residence in us as your children. You have made us your home. You have made us your temple. So as we walked into this building of simply brick and mortar, we have brought in with us the presence of God. So, Lord, I pray that as we sit here, as people filled with your spirit, that your spirit would be the one that talks, speaks, convicts, teaches, and ultimately empowers each person in this room to obey what your word unfolds. And God, I pray that in all of that, it would be for your glory to proclaim your excellencies. So God, bless this moment for those purposes and those purposes alone. Get rid of distractions. 
May I speak clearly and boldly. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to go through a few main teachings from this text, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. I gave you a handout. You can fill in the blanks there. Um, so we got some teachings here. Teaching number one, Jesus is the cornerstone. When we're thinking about God's project, God's building project for the world, we have to remember that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, that Jesus is the foundation. What we see in this, this passage is that Jesus is the first living stone that then sets a pattern for his followers to follow, to create a pattern of living stones. And he uses the stone imagery because it pertains to the temple. And we see here that Jesus is the foundation for God's work in the world, for the restoration that we get to experience. And it says that this happened by him being rejected. And we know that his rejection was that he came to earth, he lived a perfect life, he challenged the religious elites, he, he announced that the kingdom was arriving in him, he was claiming that he was the Messiah, and men rejected him, they decided to crucify him, kill him, though he was innocent of any crime, and they mocked him, they put a crown of thorns on his head. This was the rejection that Peter is talking about here. But for this uh, theme tonight, we need to recognize Jesus is the foundation. Now, just to clarify, and this is going to be really important because it's a, it's a portion of this passage that um, becomes really important for our faith as Christians. God is not talking about, or Peter's not talking about Jesus being the first act of God. He's not saying that Jesus was the first one created by God. In fact, in this passage, we see one of the strongest testimonies to the fact that Jesus was nothing less than God himself. Um, according to verse 4, the Lord is the one of verse 3, and that's Yahweh. Okay, We're just getting a little technical here. But basically, what we're seeing is that the Yahweh, the God, the Lord, testified to here in this passage is Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God himself. So this is really important for us to understand because when we say that Jesus is the cornerstone or the foundation of God's redemption for us or God's rest restoration, his building project, we're not saying that Jesus was created by God or that Jesus was the first act of God. We are saying nothing less than Jesus is God. So this is a, a doctrine that we often call the Trinity for Christians, we believe in something called the Trinity, that, that Scripture testifies to the fact that God, in this crazy, mysterious way, He is one God and three persons. One God and three persons. So we have God existing, and then three persons exist in that. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are all equally God, but they are distinct from one another. And listen, that doesn't make sense. You can't comprehend that. You can't understand it. We don't have categories in our understanding to sort all that out. This is operating on a different level of understanding. The doctrine of the Trinity is a mystery. And I want to show you a clip from the guys at the Bible Project. They, they show this great illustration of what it's like for us to try and understand the Trinity. 
Okay, so let's play this. It's like one minute, I think so, and uh, and then we'll come back. But this is in regards to the Trinity. Play it, Quentin. So I've got a question that's always bothered me. The Bible says there's one God, but in other parts of the Bible, God is three, Father, Son, and Spirit. How can it be both? Yeah, this is a question that has mystified people for thousands of years. And while we can't fully explain it, I think we can better understand what it is that we can't fully understand. (laughs) What do you mean? Well, think of it this way. Here's a two-dimensional plane. And then here's an object with three dimensions that's going to pass through the 2D plane. Okay, right. From this perspective, the 3D object's above and below the plane. So now that makes sense. But imagine you were a 2D person stuck on the 2D plane. What would you see? I don't know. What would I see? Well, it would look like this. Oh, yeah, okay. From this perspective, it looks impossible. It's one object, and then then two objects, and then three. But in reality, they're all one, just not in a way you're capable of understanding. Now, let's take this whole thing as a visual analogy for how we experience So did you guys catch that visual? I think it's a very good way for us to visualize what we're trying to do when we understand God. Okay, God is like a different dimension, a different category. He exists outside of space, time, and matter. And we are seeking to understand his nature. And it doesn't always jive with our limitations. Okay, and this is the only thing I want to say about this. Is that's a good thing. That is a really good thing. And that's a comforting thing that you cannot understand God. The fact that our finite creaturely minds cannot fathom God, who is eternal and transcendent, that's a good thing, okay? If you can understand God, if you can fully grasp God, you need a bigger God. And you need to read Scripture more. You need to actually think through what you're calling God, because God is bigger than our understanding, We cannot fathom how big, massive, eternal, awesome, glorious, beautiful God is. He doesn't exist on our terms. And it's only by his grace that he's revealed himself to us. And the utmost revelation from God is Jesus Christ himself. So if we really want to understand God, we need to understand Jesus. But that's an act of grace that God lets us even comprehend who he is. So that's all I wanted to hit on. As I was studying this passage weeks ago, it was actually before we got snowed out and everything, it just, this whole idea of the Trinity came in, and a lot of times we just pass over that, like, it's just one of those things you don't understand, it's crazy. But it's a good reminder to us that God is bigger than we can fathom. And that's how great and how good our God is. So I just wanted to hit that for us. But here in Peter specifically, We see that Jesus is the cornerstone, the foundation for our restoration, our salvation as people. And there are two important things regarding how Peter communicates this. Two important things in particular to the type of language Peter uses, okay? That of a living stone. It's kind of an odd language, a living stone. Has anyone ever seen a living stone? No. Like, this is a weird term, and we just... You know, go over it. Living stones, yeah, that makes sense. No, it doesn't. So why does Peter use this language? Okay, why is he talking about a living stone? Number one, 
Peter uses this language because it's loaded with messianic connotations. Could have used a different word than connotations. It's, it's loaded with allusions to the Messiah. So when he uses this phrase, living stone, people are picking up on messianic, Christ-like language. Meaning, when Peter says that, that Jesus was the living stone, he's pointing back to the fact that Jesus was the fulfillment of an Old Testament figure that was testified to. So he's using this term because the Old Testament writers of Scripture use this term to refer to the Messiah. So Peter is identifying Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ. That's what the word Christ means. It's Messiah. So Peter is saying Jesus was the one promised throughout the whole Old Testament, and that's why he uses this language. Secondly, he's alluding to, he's referencing the resurrection. Jesus is a living stone as opposed to a dead stone or a regular stone because he rose again from the dead. So it's important to note that this is the specific characteristic that launches God's program in the world. Jesus rising from the dead alerted everybody that God is on the move. Something is happening. Something is being worked out in the world Not simply like an idea, there's a new idea, a new way of living, or a new way of thinking. It's a new way of life that has happened in Jesus, because that's what the resurrection points to. So, that's why Peter uses this language, because it identifies Jesus as the Messiah, and it prioritizes his resurrection. Okay, if if we want to think about what God is doing in the world, we need to think about resurrection. We need to look back to Jesus and see that he made dead things alive. So that's the first teaching. Jesus is the foundation of all of this. If we think about God's work in the world, we need to think of Jesus as the cornerstone, as him as the foundation. Teaching number two, God's people are living stones of God's spiritual house. Just realize that that language is so interesting, right? We, We, a lot of us have grown up in Christian bubbles And uh, we're just so used to phrases like that. Like, they're calling us living stones. They're saying we're the spiritual house of God. Like, there is something interesting and crazy here. So let's just dive in here. The first thing to see is, as living stones, our identity as Christians, as the people of God, is being tied up to Jesus. It's being linked with Jesus. He is the living stone, and so we are also called living stones. This is what the Christian life is. Your identity is being reshaped, reformed into the person of Jesus. Since Jesus was the living stone, his followers and his children are going to be made into living stones. You understand what I'm saying about that? So being a Christian, listen to me, it's not simply about having the right beliefs. It's not simply, simply that you have four different versions of the Bible that sit on your shelf. It's not the fact that you show up here Sunday night and Wednesday. You're the first one to sign up for events. You are locked and loaded as the typical church kid. That is not what the Christian life is essentially about. The Christian life is, the fact, is, is wrapped up in the fact that your identity is determined by Jesus. And who you are and who you are becoming has been patterned and empowered by the person of Jesus. That is what the Christian life is all about. 
So what this means is that God has brought you into a process as a child of God to make you into Jesus, more and more like Jesus. And that's what it means to be a Christian. But he's building you up. He's brought you into a process. God is going to begin, continue, and finish a process with you. And we see a couple of reasons why he's doing that here. First, he's building you up to make you more like Jesus because he's building you into his spiritual house. Think about that. God is building you up to be a spiritual house for his presence. Do you realize the weight of that? The God of the universe who exists, who we can't fathom in our understanding, who exists outside of space, time, and matter, who spoke this world into existence, who defines everything, good and evil, this God has chosen in his grace and mercy to take up residence in you. That's what the amazing work of Jesus has done. So through the work of Jesus, God is pleased to dwell in you. He's adopted you into his family and made you a new creation so that he can dwell in you in you. And now, this is not simply like a cool characteristic, like, wow, that's awesome. This is a source of power. This is why this is so important for the biblical writers. Paul talks about this in Romans 8. He says, the same power that resurrected Jesus from the grave is living inside of you. You have no reason as a Christian to be ill-equipped for the task God has called you to. There's, no, there's nothing you are not capable of in and through the power of Jesus to accomplish because you have the God of the universe dwelling inside of you. So again, this is not simply like a cool characteristic of the Christian life. This is a source of power. This is saying you are empowered to do what God has called you to do. Rest in that. Have confidence in that. God is going to empower you to do what he wants you to do. So God's presence is power, and it's a power that most specifically has to be used for transformation. Listen, guys, we're all in here, and we all struggle with sin. There are things we're embarrassed of. There are things that we don't want anyone to know about that we're struggling with. We can't beat this sin. We can't overcome this battle. We continue to have this character defect. And yet... We are equipped by the presence of God living inside of us to overcome that, to be transformed, to be more and more like Jesus. We can be transformed. And this is one of the important ways that we see that he, he dwells in us to do it, to change us from the inside out. Um, another thing that God is building us up, point number three, God's people are a holy priesthood. He's building you up as a priest. It's interesting, Pastor Bobby, this morning, if you were in Sunday services, um, talked about the priesthood of all believers. The fact that we as Baptists, we emphasize this point, that all of us in here are priests. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are a priest. But here, what we see is that this is the purpose for God's work in your life. This is what God has in mind for you. God has saved you 
so that you could proclaim his excellencies, his beauty, the marvelous work of his salvation, his glory. God has saved you, called you into his family, taken you from deadness to life, placed his spirit within you so that you could proclaim how awesome God is. Listen, guys, I know this, is, this might shake you a little bit. God did not save you because you're awesome. God did not save you because he cares so much about your happy feelings. God did not save you so that he can simply situate you in a place called heaven and you get pleasures forevermore. God saved you to change you, to transform you, so that he could be glorified, so that you could proclaim how awesome and glorious this God is that saved you. Now, the counterpoint of that is that that is where fullness of joy is. That, that, is, that is how you enjoy life when you're folded back into that design. But it's so important that you hear me. Your salvation is not simply about you. It's about the fact that God wants to use you to proclaim how glorious and how awesome he is. So God saved you so that you can tell God's story through your story. That you were once in darkness, but now you are in light. You were once wandering. You were homeless. You were struggling, lost, but now you are a member of the family of God. And this is what God is up to. He's up to changing your story so that your story can proclaim the excellencies of him. You see, one of the interesting things throughout the biblical story that we see is that God's temple was not designed to contain his presence. It was designed to unleash his presence. So think about that. You are called a house of God. You're called the spiritual house of God, not simply so that God can be like your cozy person inside of you and so you can contain God's presence. God has taken up residence in you so that you could unleash his presence wherever you go. We see a great picture of this in Ezekiel. He has this image of the temple. Ezekiel was a cool guy. He had all these trippy visions. Um, he had this like heavenly tour guide come and like show him all these visions and they go to this temple and Ezekiel sees this temple in uh, chapter 47 of Ezekiel. And he sees this river flowing out of the temple. And it's coming out all the sides. And so they walk further from the temple and the water keeps getting deeper and deeper. Just showing that the temple is a source for God's glory and beauty to multiply. For it to emanate goodness and God's glory from it. So God's presence is designed to multiply. And then the other thing we see is that as this river flowing out of the temple makes its way to the Dead Sea, it makes it into a fresh sea. And there's all this fish, and then the trees sprout up, and it makes uh, fruit that don't die and fruit that gives healing and nourishment. So basically, this is, this is the point. God's presence is a source of healing and of resurrection and revival. God's presence is something that's supposed to bring revival to deadness. And then take all this imagery, okay, and apply it to yourself. If you are the house of God, if you are now called the temple of God, then you are commissioned, you're called to be someone who unleashes the presence of God into the world, bringing life and renewal wherever you go.
And this is what it means to be a priest. This is what he says when he says you've been called a priest. A priest is someone who mediates a relationship. They stand between two parties and make sure um, they can restore the relationship. That's what the Levites did for the people of Israel. Jesus is called our great high priest. He stands in between the Father and us to restore our relationship. And we, likewise, are called priests so that we can stand between God and the world and represent God to the nations, to others. But I want to give you two practical things as your role as a priest. It's like, okay, cool, I'm a priest. It's awesome. You start wearing the collar and whatnot. But I want to give you practical things. How does it change your week, the fact that you embrace your role as a priest? Every believer in here, every Jesus follower is a priest. What does that look like? Number one, proclaim God to one another. One of the things we overlook often when we think about being a priest is the fact that we are called to be priests to the other people in this room. We're called to actually proclaim God to the other brothers and sisters in Christ that we're in relationship with. So one of the reasons that you come to student ministry events and gatherings is actually to play a priestly role with one another. Hebrews says that we gather together so that we stir one another up in love. That's you being a priest. Share what God is teaching you. Encourage one another. Pray for one another. You know, I pray that the friendships that are in this room are beyond common interests. They're beyond the fact that, you know, you like the same sports team. They're beyond the fact that you laugh at the same jokes or that you grew up together. I pray that your friendships would be one where you're actually playing a priestly role with one another, where you are pointing them to God. You're proclaiming to them the excellencies of God. And listen, this doesn't have to be super complicated or awkward or weird. They're very, it's very simple. So this is what I want to challenge you with this week. Send one text, one Snapchat, one DM on Instagram, whatever, to encourage someone in this room. Send one text of encouragement to someone in this room. Proclaim God's excellencies to them. Talk about how God has uh, been restoring you, how, what he's been teaching you. And so this is the second part of the challenge. Ask them, what has God been teaching you lately? Do you have the courage to ask that? What has God been teaching you lately? So that's my challenge. Send one text of encouragement. Ask them also, what has God been teaching you lately? So those are practical ways you can embrace your role as a priest to other people in this room. Second thing, proclaim God to the nations. We talk about the nations as Christians. And this is simply a term that we've adopted from Scripture to refer to unbelievers, to people that are not in the family of God. So we are not only priests for one another, but we are priests to the world. We have been commissioned and called to represent God to a world that desperately needs him. So in your schools, in your neighborhoods, on your rec teams, on the Instagram, whatever, on the Xbox party chat, there are people that need Jesus. 
And your role as a Christian is to be a priest. Like, is that informing your interactions with people? I'm, I'm not asking to be like super weird and crazy. I'm saying, do you have the perspective that your role is one of a priest to everyone you come into contact with? So this week, my challenge for you, proclaim the excellencies of God to one person. Do that. How has God changed your life? How has God given you hope? How has God given you joy in your suffering? Proclaim how good and great he is. So God's building project refers to his desire to restore his relationship with humanity, people he created, so that he could proclaim his glory. And God has been about this ever since the beginning of creation. He wants to dwell among his people. In Genesis, he walked with man in the garden. As he rescued his people from Egypt, God dwelt in a tent. As he raised Israel up to be a mighty nation, they built a temple, and he lived with them there. Every stage of history, God has led his people to dwell with him. And we see the climax of this in Jesus. Jesus himself called himself the temple of God. He was the embodiment of heaven and earth meeting. It was Jesus. Jesus was the greater tabernacle, the greater temple. And so God's presence is there in Jesus. And what Jesus does is he gives that to his children. So we don't have a temple anymore. We don't have a tabernacle We don't have to go to a location to worship God or be in God's presence because God dwells in us. We ourselves are tabernacles, our temples. And we know that this will come to full restoration with the new heavens and the new earth. There, at the end of the age, we will dwell with God perfectly. There'll be no corruption They'll not even, it's the the writers say there's not even going to be a sun because the glory of God is so bright. And it's so illuminating. So we are on a path to dwell with God. This is what God's building project is all about. So the question for us tonight, are you embracing your role in God's building project? Are you embracing your role as a living stone and a holy priest? Practically, since you're the house of God, this means that you need to seek spirit-filled transformation. Practically, because you're a priest, this means that you need to seek to proclaim the excellencies of God. If you are a member of the family of God, if you call yourself a person in the people of God, this is what you are about. So, are you proclaiming the excellencies of God? And are you seeking spirit-filled transformation? And here's last thing I'll say. These two things go hand in hand. You cannot proclaim how excellent, good, and beautiful God is if you are not committed to your own personal transformation in Jesus. Listen, there's a lot of Christians out there that want to yell at people about what Jesus says, and not a lot of Christians out there that want to show people what Jesus really cares about by being a loving person like Jesus was. 
do not dare be someone who lectures people without loving people. So when we talk about proclaiming the excellencies of God, you have to see that in conjunction, in tandem, linked with your personal transformation to be more like Jesus. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever save. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. Live for you. Holy, there is no Holy. 